I read that the average person will gain six pounds in the holiday season. Tell your neighbor that's certainly not you. You just broke the curve. Well, I tell you, I'm so excited about something I want to tell you, but my advisors told me I better not yet. But we are still negotiating on the final phases of a potential uh, new site for our church family. So uh, we want you to be praying. Lawyers have all the documents, and we're just kind of this far uh, away, but we just don't feel like we need to say it over, over the Internet, over Facebook and all that until the deal's done. So you pray for us that we'll find God's special plan. Will you do that? Well, I trust you had a good family time at Thanksgiving. I know we did. My, my grandson came to see me, and I must apologize for my voice a little bit. Uh, I've got a little uh, a crud in my, in my system. Uh, my, we taught my grandson how to blow a duck collar, and uh, he's blowing it, but then he puts it in your mouth to blow it, and before you can put your mouth away, so I think I got some, uh, some baby crud, but he lives in Rogers, which is too far away to have a relationship with his grandparents, you know, where you can see him every day. Linnell and I have found a way to make it easier for him to come. We bought him a car. There's only one problem, though. I want to show you this little car here. Okay, Henry. Whoa! He's going fast. Well, he can steer, he can blow the horn, and he can turn the key, but he refuses to push himself. And I have not got Linnell to yet commit to go up there and push him down here, so I guess I'm right where I was. Hey, really glad you're here today. It's an honor for me. I was thinking about what I'm grateful for, and one of the things that I'm grateful for is that we live in a free nation, that we can openly hold a Bible, and we can gather together and learn God's Word. I'm grateful that we live in a nation where we can freely worship the Lord, and uh, I'm just so grateful that you're here today and we're able to share this journey together. Uh, we're going to finish today a series called Jesus Said What?, it was a, a, a walk through every verse of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount has done more to shape the morals, the values of Western civilization than any other uh, message or sermon or talk that's ever been given in the history of the world. It's quite profound what Jesus said. It's a great summary place if you want to look and see the, the high points of how to live a life that pleases God. Well, today's message is a little different. It has one closing principle. This whole message of the Sermon on the Mount has been little short paragraphs or even verses where Jesus would take a, a subject. He'd talk about marriage and divorce. He'd, he'd, talk about, uh, he'd talk about anger. He'd talk about murder. He talked about judging. All these different things, and they're kind of standalone units. Well, this is the last one. Uh, it's called the Golden Rule. And then we move from this last how to live to four warnings for how we'll respond to what Jesus said. And I think you're going to find it quite interesting today and very helpful. But let's begin with the golden rule. Um, Matthew 7, verse 12. And why don't you say this first part with me? Jesus said, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. It is a principle of life. But then he added this. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Now, the law, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophetic writings, and what Jesus is saying when it comes to human relationships, the entire Old Testament is summarized in this one verse, 
that God, it pleases God that we treat other people the way that we want to be treated. Again, Jesus didn't call it the golden rule, but culture has called it that because it's value in teaching people how to get along. There's a rabbi, his name was Hillel, a famous Jewish rabbi. He gave the negative form of it before Jesus. He said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And when I thought of this, I thought of an 18-wheeler on I-30. Not too long ago, I'd made the loop, and I was going back home. And when you you get get onto I-30 right up here off of State Line, it's not a lot of room if you don't get in your lane quickly. Well, there was this big 18-wheeler that was barreling down, and I was assured that my Ford could take him on because he wasn't moving. But he, for whatever reason, he decided he was not going to move. And before I know it, I'm on the side of the road. And before I know it, there's a bridge right up there that seemed pretty close to me. And I thought, boy, I hope that never happens again. And then I said this, I'd never do that to anybody. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Things in life that we find repulsive, that hurt us, that are detrimental to our life, don't do it to other people. Now, this is not saying that if we do, that we do good to others, so they'll do good in return. This is not a gimmick. But it's simply telling us how to live in such a way that pleases God because it pleases God the way that I treat other people. For example, if I I want to live the golden rule, if I want you to tell me the truth, what should I do? Sure, tell you the truth. How about let you uh, get in traffic? I mean, sometimes it's pretty tough on Richmond Road and you wonder, well, gee, sir, you managed to make it 15 feet closer to a red light that has 40 cars between you and it and you wouldn't let me in. Now, why is that? And it just kind of bothers you. Well, Jesus, listen, if you want to get in, what are we supposed to do? Let other people in. Sure, sure. Uh, How many want a second and a third and a fourth chance when you mess up? Well, sure. Then we give that to other people. So this is the golden rule. And, you know, you can simplify the whole Bible. If you look at this Bible, this particular version is about 1,800 pages. It's got a lot of study notes to it. It's pretty complicated. You can get tied up on a lot of things that don't make that much difference. But if, you, if I could give you three summary verses, like mountain peaks that are the high points of the Bible, the first one here is this golden rule, how we treat people. But the second, when Jesus was asked, what is the two greatest commandments of all? And Jesus said, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you would live by the golden rule, the great commandments, loving God and loving people, and lastly, the great commission. This is the last thing Jesus said in the four Gospels in the early Acts before he went into heaven. Jesus told us that we're to take the good news of Christ to all people all over the world. And if you and I would just simply live by that, how many know life would be better? We'd be better off. Now, he kind of goes from this, and this golden rule is a summary of all our human relationships that have been mentioned in the the, the, uh, Sermon on the Mount. But now he's going to focus on four warnings. He's going to talk about narrow and wide gates. He's going to talk about false prophets. And I don't mean out of the church, I mean in the church. He's going to talk about the imperative of doing God's will rather than just doing religious things. And he's, lastly, he's going to talking about building our life on the right foundation. He calls it the rock rather than sifting sand. And I think this will help you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Let's look at the first warning. Jesus talks about a narrow gate and a wide gate. Now, he says, enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. I mean, you think just a moment about gates. I was raised on a farm, and we had different types of gates, 
in pastures where we had cows, if we had enough time to do this, we would build what amounted to just a little V through the fence. And it was about three and a half, maybe three foot, maybe four foot this way, and then a quick jerk, uh, four foot that way. And the cow couldn't turn around to go through it. It was a narrow gate. It was a little bit difficult. You couldn't get the four-wheeler through it. You had to walk through it. And then when we had gates, when we go in fields where we might raise soybeans, that big header was, you know, 20, 25 feet wide, and we'd have this really wide gate. It was barbed wire and small posts, and we'd open it up really big so the equipment could get through. Well, what Jesus is going to say is life is like this. There's a wide path, a wide gate. Uh, Notice what he said. It's easy and it leads to destruction. Now, destruction, this is a passage about eternal life and eternal judgment. He said, there's a wide gate, it's easy, which means, you know, you you, you pretty much do what you want to when you go through the wide gate. Nobody tells you what to do. There's no rules or laws. And many people go through it. But then he said, verse 14, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. This is eternal life. This is heaven. And then he says, those who find it are, now listen to the words again, wide, easy, destruction, many, narrow, hard, life, few. Each of these warnings give us a choice. And the choice Jesus is making after he's given us the Sermon on the Mount, now what will you do? My words are the words that will take you through the narrow gate, but you'll end up with life. There's only two categories of people in the world those who genuinely know God and follow his ways and those who don't. We're told today by many in in the secular world that all religions are the same. If if you learn anything at a public school, it's a good chance that's what you'll learn. There's just many ways to God. There's many religions in the world. It just kind of depends on where you're raised. But can I tell you, Christianity is different than any other religion. Christianity is different than Buddhism. It's different than, than Muslims. It's different than all the religions of the world because of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus did on that cross is he made a way that our sins could be paid for, a way that the relationship with God that was broken, Jesus paid the penalty of our sins so that we could have eternal life with God. And that's why Christianity is different than any other religion. Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, the life, all definitive articles. No man comes to the Father but by me. So there's two categories of people, people that know the Lord and follow him and those who don't. Now, a person on the narrow pathway, who is that? Well, that's someone who hears Jesus' words and obeys them. And, of course, Jesus said that they would, be, they would be eternally saved. But the sad thing is the majority of the people will reject the words of Christ. This is one of the saddest words in the Bible, that the good news that we've celebrated today. Listen, you took time out of your day today. You took time to come and worship God. You took time to invest in God's kingdom You're listening to the Word of God right now. This is the way that we're living our lives. But you know, most people in the world will not do this. God wants everybody to be saved, but that doesn't mean everybody will be saved. That is a lie in modern theology called universalism. Uh, People who follow God's narrow pathway, they follow it when it's hard. Now that word narrow is the Greek word thlebo, and it means to experience trouble or difficulty. I'm sure you heard this week of the Christian missionary. He was a young man that went to an island off the coast of India. This island was what uh, sociologists today would say is the most remote tribe in the world today. And he acted on Jesus' command to take the gospel to them, but they didn't want to hear it, and they shot him and killed him with arrows. Now, I mean, you know, that's hard. 
And I pray that we never have that kind of hard experience. But I can tell you, I'm here today because I've walked a hard path. I became a Christian when I was 19. I got an orientation for my life. I felt God call me in the ministry. When I got out of the Navy, I wanted to go back to where my family lived, in Mississippi. My dad was, was a farmer there. I thought I'd have a little church in his town. But the Holy Spirit wanted me to go back to California. And the Holy Spirit wanted me to be trained in a different environment. Well, you know what? That was hard for me. And I had to make a choice between doing what I wanted to do and things that would really please my family as opposed to doing God's will. And I want to tell you today, it's not always easy to do God's will, but it'll always be worth it. Yeah. Listen to what Jesus said. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to the crowd of people, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. This is exactly what I had to do as a 23-year-old. Give up your own way. Take up your cross. The cross is not just an, a reminder of Christ. It's not just an emblem that we wear. But we're reminded that it's, it reminds us of suffering. It reminds us of sacrifice. And then Jesus said, follow me. Because he said this thing. He said, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to... What does that mean? If you try to have it your way, if you try to have God and, and, and go your own way, you, you can't do both. I, I use this illustration. If you can imagine, this is a, a boat ramp over here and a pier out in the water. It's kind of doing that in the waves. And here's your little boat right here, and you're getting ready to get in it. And you think, well, well boy, this pier is safe. But this boat, I don't know, it's just a little fishing boat with a motor, and the waves are pretty good out there. And all of a sudden, they let the, they let the strings go that hold it, and the boat starts moving away. I know. The boat starts moving away from the shore, and, 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 and you can't do both. And pretty soon, you've got to make a choice. You've got to say, I'm getting all in with Jesus, or I'm not going that way. I'm going back over here where I think it's going to be safe. Can I tell you, friend, it's way safer in the boat. It's way safer. You'll be way happier. You'll end up in your life. Listen, if you live over here on the pier, all you're going to end up in life with, with some trophies on the wall, some whatever you collect and whatever you do, whether it's guns or, or, or deer antlers or turkey horns or shoes in your closet or diamond rings or whatever it is or whatever your accomplishments are, your accolades, you'll have all those, but in eternity they won't be anything. But when you get over here in the boat... And you do what the Lord said. You invest some of your money in the kingdom. You invest your time. You sacrifice. You serve the Lord. Well, guess what? That kind of stuff is eternal. And this is what Jesus means. Jesus said, if you live, live all on the pier, you're going to lose it all. But if you give up your life for my sake, you're going to save it. And then he said, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? Now, let me tell you another way that you can look at this. Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. And I, I, I feel like American Christianity has offered a Savior apart from being Lord. It's almost like we've interpreted grace to be that grace is simply to get you to heaven when you die, rather than Jesus wanting us to follow him on earth. And what he's saying is he's saying, if you want to go through the narrow pathway, you've got to put me first in your life. And how many can say first is best? And I want to suggest to you, there's two great leaps in the Christian life. The first leap is to get in the boat with Jesus. And the second leap is to let him steer the boat. It's like driving a car. Uh, let's just imagine you become aware, if I can use this analogy, you, you have a, a, an awareness of God. You want to be, know God and kind of walk with God. And here's Jesus standing on the side of the road. And you pull your car over the side of the road and you unlock the door and say, get in the back seat. And now you feel better. 
It's like my grandmother. She used to have a little statue of Jesus on her car. Uh, her, her sister was a Catholic, and a little statue of Jesus on her car it made her feel better. Well, Jesus is in your back seat driving, but it just doesn't feel right about that. See, you can know him as your Savior, but Jesus doesn't want to just ride in the back of the car wherever we go. Jesus wants to drive. And this is the second great step in the Christian life is to make Jesus Lord. And I want to suggest to you, that's what people on the narrow pathway are doing. Come on, give him a good hand today. Let's look at the next two. Now, you're going to find these next two very interesting. I find them very troubling. The second warning is about false prophets. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, you've seen a a, a wolf or a, a coyote on Animal Planet go after a rabbit, and when they catch it or a young deer, they just literally rip it apart if it's a group of them. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. Some religious leaders that appear good on the outside, but on the inside, there's a perverseness about them. Sheep's clothing mean they go to church. As the preacher, they have a jacket or whatever the case is, or the worship pastor has on skinny jeans. I don't know. But, but they have the look, they have the lingo, but something's wrong on the inside. Jesus said, verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Fruits are what grows in your life. For example, Galatians talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness. Uh, we're told that fruit is what was produced. And then he illustrates it. Jesus said, are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? Of course, the answer is no. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased one bear good Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, listen now, is cut down and thrown in the fire. Once again, a picture of judgment, eternal judgment, the fire. And then Jesus said, you'll recognize them by their fruits, or you'll know these false prophets by what they do. Christians, we must be on our guard against professing Christian leaders who have the appearance of speaking God's message, but in reality are false. It's interesting that if you have the ESV, it's translated a ravenous wolf. Oh, this word ravenous, it means greedy or praying. And literally what he's saying is just like a coyote goes after a rabbit and eats it and tears it apart, that's what a false prophet ends up doing in the life of a church to believers. And it's often around taking their money. It's often around doing something, getting something from them rather than doing something for them. These false prophets are not there to serve, and we'll recognize them by the self-serving things they do. Now, this is taught throughout the Scripture. Jesus mentioned this again in Matthew 24, a chapter dealing with the last days. He said false messiahs are people promising to be saviors, promising to be your answer man that's going to help you. False messiahs and false prophets will appear, and listen to this. They'll perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In other words, there's going to be false people going out in the Christian community doing miracles, or what appears to be miracles. Peter picked up this theme, and Peter said there used to be false prophets in God's people, just as you will have some false teachers in your group, in your group, and that's the key thing. 
It could be a, a, a small group leader, a life group leader. It could be an evangelist that visits the church. It could be a pastor. It could be someone that arises in the midst that are not true, but they're false. They will secretly teach things that are wrong. They'll even refuse to accept the master, Jesus. And I think this is the key. Because master implies Lord that we submit to. But Jesus said the false people will almost be a law unto themselves. It's almost as if they'll be adorned with pride and not humility. One of the greatest marks of a true Christian leader is that they're humble. And to be humble, it simply means they totally depend on God. They do their best to follow the teachings of the Bible. And this doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean they don't sin on occasion. But what it means is these are people genuinely dedicated to God. But the false, peop but the false teacher will secretly teach the wrong. And look at verse 2. It says, many will follow their evil ways. And I think it's because many that are a false are charismatic. It's the way they're dressed. It's the way they're able to talk to make people laugh. So, A, the way they're able to manipulate a crowd. They might have a spiritual gift about them. And I suggest to you that many people are following the outside rather than, of a man rather than the inside. They're following what appeals on television as opposed to true Christian truth and teaching. These false teachers only want your... Is it up there? See, when I do this, I'm not scratching my ear. I want you to tell me what it says. These false teachers only want your... Hey, have you ever felt that way in church? I pray to God you've never felt that way here, and if you have, I ask you to forgive us. But there's a feeling that money's important in church. Jesus taught about offerings. He affirmed tithing. It's a part of what we do as a corporate experience, but it's not the main thing. And it's not to benefit, come on, just a few people. Well, that's what the false teacher is doing. They want your money, and they'll use you by telling lies. And I would suggest these lies can even be a perversion of the Scripture even cherry-picking scriptures to say what they want to say. Uh, Paul warns about this. Acts 20, he's talking to the elders at Ephesus. He says, false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth. An influential leader, someone that has an ability, somebody that has an anointing, all you, before you know it, they have lifted themselves up and isolated people from the body and from the leadership and the accountability in the church. I'd run away from someone like that. Notice, notice what it says. These false teachers will come in. Some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth to draw a following. And what's he say? Watch out. Watch out. It is out there. Now, how do you recognize? i, I got to be honest. That didn't help me a whole lot when Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Because what is the fruit? So let's kind of explore it just a little bit. Let me show you a little picture here. Uh, now, it's pretty obvious to know which piece of fruit you'd eat, right? Well, have you ever been to an old country grocery store that couldn't replenish their stock regularly and they had rotten fruit? Have you ever been somewhere and the bananas were all brown? You could have made banana nut bread right there on the counter of that grocery store. Well... I'm just telling you, friends, it's not that obvious from the appearance. That green apple with the brown spot looks different, but usually the false teacher is a red apple, but it's some brown on it. How would you recognize someone? Well, here's the first thing I'd tell you, false doctrine. This is why it's so important to know the Bible. 
There's something you won't hear taught much about in the modern church today. It's about hell. There's a belief called universalism, another false doctrine. Universalism teaches that everybody's going to heaven. Universal t- universalism teaches the opposite of what Jesus said. Didn't Jesus, we just read, about a narrow pathway that leads to life? But there are Christian teachers that teach today that everybody's going to heaven, that God is a good God, and God certainly wouldn't do that. It's a lie. It's false. Hell is taught in the Bible. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. But yet it, you, would, you would stretch yourself to study the sermons that are preached in, the, in America today, and you rarely find hell. Why is it? Because it's so repulsive to the consumer Christian. False doctrine is an indicator. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that, that uh, every person that teaches a false doctrine is a false prophet. They just may be deceived and deluded. They just may be preaching what they heard somebody else say, and they really don't know. But false teachers have false doctrine. And here's another one. And this deals with sensuality. It deals with money. They are serving for a paycheck. They're in the ministry for the money or the praise of people. Now, Jesus said two things about the Pharisees. Jesus said they were lovers of money. And Jesus also said they love the praise of man more than they love the praise of God. This reveals the person's heart. Again, this is the opposite of humility. Listen to what Peter said, 1 Peter 5. He told to the elders, care for the flock that God's entrusted for you, not for what you can get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. In other words, your platform as an elder or pastor is not just to get people to do things for you or to honor or recognize you. I mean, no, that's the same thing that goes on in corporate America. That's the same ladder. Jesus said, whoever's greatest among you is to be your what? Your servant. Sure. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, from the least to the greatest, Their lives are ruled by greed. From prophets to priests, they're all frauds. Let me give you a third example of a false prophet. Uh, I'll just call it a lack of biblical character. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, when he was talking about love, he said, you can prophesy and have all knowledge, but yet if you don't have love, you're nothing. This is your character. If someone lacks biblical character, if they're defined as someone that's selfish, immoral, loves loves pleasure, and is prayerless, I would suggest to you that's not a kind of leader that you want to follow. And Jesus said in this warning, watch out for the false prophet. Now, let's look at the third warning, and this one is the most troubling of all. Some scholars believe that these two are connected because in here you're going to see Christians or leaders casting out demons, prophesying, and doing miracles. The very things that I have aspired to do in 40 years in the Pentecostal, neo-Pentecostal, charismatic, full gospel, book of Acts world, some people are doing these things but don't have a relationship with God. This is an enigma to me, and and I want, if I can, make it a little uncomfortable with you. I cannot fully explain this, but it is the most troubling verse in the Bible to me. Look at Matthew 7, the third warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, The Greek word kurios, one translation says, not everyone who says, you are my Lord. Now, this is your profession of faith. This is someone that says, yes, I'm a Christian. This is someone that when they're filling out the government form, asks about their religion, and they mark Christian. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And let's be real clear. He's not teaching salvation by works. The Bible says you're saved by grace through 
faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast, which means you cannot do enough good things to get to heaven. But this is one of the most uh, troubling things in Scripture, the relationship between faith and works. It was so troubling for Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, that he believed the book of James shouldn't be in the Bible because James says faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's meaningless. And James was not negating the role of faith. He was simply saying good works are the evidence of faith. You cannot get to heaven by doing good works, but if you are genuinely a Christian, you will have Christian character, you will have Christian actions, you will have Christian attitudes, you will be a transformed person. Now, Jesus went on to say, verse 22, on that day, now this is judgment day, many, you want, I want to circle that, so there's many people that are deceived here. Many will say to me, well, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons, we did many mighty works or miracles in your name. And then Jesus will say to them, I never, this is the heart of it, relationship with God. R religious acts, religious tradition, even going to church, good things, but won't get you to heaven. Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, right up front, it's very clear to me that he's not talking about losing your salvation. Because he said, I never knew you. He's talking about a religious person that has the language, the terminology, and even has a supernatural dimension about their life, but doesn't have an intimate relationship with God. Now, my question is this. How can a false prophet or a false teacher prophesy, cast out demons, and do miracles, but yet masquerade as a Christian? Jesus gave us a little hint, Matthew 24 Jesus said false messiahs and false prophets will perform great signs. These are the miraculous and wonders, but its purpose is to deceive the elect or the believer. What it simply tells us is this, signs and wonders can come from sources other than God. It can be a demonic power, it can be human trickery. If you read Acts chapter 8, you would see the story of Simon the Magician that deceive people in ways that they thought were of God, but they were not of God. Listen, I hope everyone in this room pursues the book of Acts, not just as history, but as a paradigm. I hope every one of us believes in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that we follow the pattern that God gives us power so we can be supernatural witness, so we can prophesy, heal the sick, and get people delivered. But just because I do those things is not an indicator of my heart. This is where it gets a little bit troubling. Now, one thing that is very clear when Jesus said, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness, if you, if you want a definition of lawlessness, look at our border right now, our southern border. Our problem in America is not that we don't love immigrants. We do. We're a nation of immigrants. Our problem is not that we don't have laws that, 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 that make a way for an ordered immigration. Our problem is not, that we're not, we're not compassionate. Our problem is we're lawless. That right now, for whatever reason, for the past 20, 25 years, people in power have been ignoring the laws in defiance. And he applies this spiritually to people who ignore God's laws. It could be ignoring God's laws on sexual morality. Uh, I, I, I heard a story of someone one time that told their teenage boy when he was growing up, said, you know what, son, it's okay to fool around. Dad did it. God doesn't care if you have a little fun. And you know what I mean by fooling around. On the flip side, if you believe the Bible, you'll be a parent that teaches your children sexual purity, sexual fidelity until marriage, 
Not because you're scared they get pregnant. Not because of the embarrassment to your family. Not because you don't want a, another, uh, uh, another uh, tax exemption. Those aren't even worth anything anymore. But you do it because you love God. And this is, this is, this is, this is what he's saying. But lawless people can come to church. Lawless people can be behind pulpits. Lawlessness means that I pretty much ignore what God says. I do what I want to do. This phrase, when Jesus said, I never knew you, that means that Jesus never recognized them in what they claimed to be. In other words, they claimed to be Christians, but Jesus never recognized it. One translator said, you were never friends of mine. You see, the starting place for Christianity, the foundation, is a personal relationship with Christ. If you say, what is a Christian? Some in the world would say, well, they go to church, they read their Bible, they tithe, uh, that, you know, this the traditional American things. No, that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone that has a personal relationship with God. A Christian is someone that has asked for Christ's forgiveness, received him as their Savior, believed on him for eternal life, and then follow him as their Lord. And then because of that, they go to church, they give money, they treat their kids and wife the way the Bible teaches. Are you with me today? But this is not a Christian. This is a Christian. And that's what was missing, a real relationship with God. It's a reality check. If I could ask you today, is Jesus... Listen, Jesus is at least in the backseat of your life for you to be here on a Sunday morning. And I, 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 I rejoice you're here. But it may be that some of us have Christ in the backseat rather than driving the car of our life. The proof that we're a Christian is not just the words that we say, but it's the life we live. It is easy to say, I believe, but to practice it is something different. The reality check is this, is doing the will of the Father a lifestyle for me? Or simply words that I profess. Remember what we read. They did all these great works, but they didn't do the will of God. If I really trust Christ for salvation, my life will no longer be self-centered, but Christ-centered. And Jesus is not saying that we can earn our salvation, but the reality of our faith will be made clear by the way we live. No one should ever be able to have to ask you if you're a Christian. They should just be able to observe you and talk about the facts of your life. And that's the evidence of being a Christian. If I could linger on this one moment, if someone were to ask me, what is my most troubling concern in the Christian church in America today? I'd say this, I think there are many people in our churches that live under a false sense, that have signed a card, shaken the preacher's hand, or whatever the case is, but have never truly committed their life to Christ. I think churches are filled with people that were offered a Savior, but didn't know that he wanted to be Lord, and they were inoculated with religion. I'm in no way trying to get you to doubt your salvation. But I do think it's healthy periodically to step back and look at your life and ask the question, is there enough evidence in my life to convict me of being a Christian in a court of law by the priorities of my life, by my calendar, by my time, by my words, by my character, and by my actions? And Jesus is saying, be careful, because many on that day will rely on a confession. They'll even have religious acts in their life. But what Jesus is looking for is that people that know him, love him, and follow him. Come on, if you want to be one, give him a big hand right now. 
Let me wrap up with the fourth warning. Uh, it's about how we build our life. Matthew 7, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. See, this is, again, it's more of the same. Well, you're like a wise man who built your house on the rock. This is the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and it beat against that house, but it didn't fall because its foundation was on the rock. That rock is Jesus. Specifically, it's the words of Christ. But everyone who hears my words and does not put them into practice, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Listen, this is what Jesus is saying. Let me show you a little picture here. These are two houses. This house was probably built in the mountains. It was built on a cliff. But you can see this white is all rock. If you can imagine the engineer, even when he put the beams, the pillars, they went into the rock. And you can imagine what winds would do if it came against that house. It's going to stand strong. This house was built on Myrtle Beach, or it was built in, in, where the hurricane hit in Florida. Beautiful view. The waves crashing near the house until the hurricane comes. And a hurricane is a form of judgment. It's a form of tribulation. Well, when the hurricane comes, guess what happened to that beautiful mansion on the side of the hill? The sand eroded it away because it was not built on the rock. And Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, arguably the Bible, are the rock to which we build our lives. It's two choices about how we live. Listen, my hope is for all of us is that we, our foundation begins with an authentic commitment to Christ. And we add to that persevering obedience that we live and do the words of the Lord. Uh, I'll close with this. There's a New Testament scholar, R.T. France, and he writes, The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but to be obeyed. People will either respond to Jesus' words or reject them. There's no other possibility. The book of James, I close with this in my scripture today. James 1.22, let's all say this out loud. The scripture says this in the book of James. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. Listen, the way Jesus is made plain as our worship team comes, the way to go have been made plain. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. The choice is up to us. There's the true, there's the false. The choice is up to us. There's building your life on the rock or building your life on the ways of the world and the sand. The choice is up to us. And I don't know about you, but I'm choosing Christ the rock. How many can say I am too, Pastor? Come on, give the Lord a good hand today. He's worthy of praise. Why don't you stand to your feet and we're going to have a little prayer. Now let me encourage you in this. Don't turn off just yet. Whether you're going to go get a taco or you're going home and there's meat in the pot or whatever the case is, it'll be there. Take just a minute and let the Holy Spirit talk to you a moment. Ask yourself the question, now what? What do I do with what I've heard? I guarantee you if someone were to come up to you, well, for me, if they were to say, Pastor, I was deer hunting, and I found this little pond that nobody knows about, this little marshy area, and it's full of mallards. 
you ought to go because nobody's been hunting there. I'd say, wait just a minute. Did you, do you have a little on Google Maps? Did you map it there for me? No, I didn't. Can you draw me a map to get there? Don't leave now. Wait just a second. It's important. It's treasure. It's gold. These are the words of Christ. If you couldn't care anything about ducks, but if you heard of an estate sale, and this woman had tons of diamonds, her kids didn't want them, and they were just going to give them away to the first people that came up. They were going to sell everyone. You could buy a one car- a two-carat diamond, flawless, for $20. You'd figure out where that was, and you'd go there because it's important. So could we just bow our head just a minute and say, Lord, we want your words to be important to us. And I have to leave the prayer today and say sometimes they're not as important as they should be. Sometimes I let my feelings get in the way. Sometimes my flesh gets in the way. Sometimes just my old sinful desires get in the way. But I want to ask you, Lord, to help me value your words. Why don't you just pray that right now? Just tell the Lord, I don't want to go through the wide pathway. It's easy. I know sometimes the narrow path is going to be hard. It's going to cost me. But Lord, it'll be worth it. Would you help me? Would you say that right now? Say, Lord, would you help me? Help me to choose the narrow path. I'm not where I was, but I'm not where I want to be. And I don't want to, I don't want to level off. I want to keep going after God all the days of my life. And I don't ever want to be a false prophet or a false teacher. I don't want to ever be someone that uses people. I don't want to ever be someone that ignores the will of God and misses it all. I want to be someone that tracks right with you. Slip your hands to heaven now and say, Lord, would you help me with this? Help me, Lord, when it's hard. Help me when everything is pulling me in the other direction. Help me, Lord, make the choice of Christ the rock to build my life. In Jesus' name. Let's close this way. I may have our prayer team come back up and they're going to be here. If you need prayer for anything, people will be leaving. It'll be a very private time for you, but someone will pray for you. They'll do one last song and uh, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll worship during it. But the most important prayer we'd like to pray is if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I need to commit my life to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're honest enough to say, Pastor, I've not been walking on that narrow pathway. I've been walking on the wide one. If I were to ask you, are you 100% sure if you'd go to heaven or hell, maybe you can't say yes. Friend, today could be the day that could change. Maybe you're here today and you found that what the world offers, relationships, money, cars, all that, that it doesn't satisfy your deepest need, your need for God. Friend, you can commit your life to Christ and he'll change that. Maybe just coming to church today makes you aware of the sins in your life. I remember the first time that started happening to me. I was about 19 years of age, and it was the strangest thing. It was not just knowing at my head that something was wrong. I I felt this feeling that now I understand was conviction, that the Holy Spirit was putting his finger on things in my life, and he wanted me to turn. Maybe that's you, and you need to turn to Christ. Maybe it's the fear of death as you're aging, or, or maybe you're young and someone that you know died unexpectedly 
and you want to make sure on the day of your death that you're going to be with the Lord. Listen, whatever your reason is, but if you feel Jesus Christ drawing you, if you want to make a commitment of your life to Christ, if you want to get right with God today, I'm going to encourage you as we begin to sing this song that you just slip out of your chair and come meet someone at the cross. We're not asking you to join the church. We don't want anything from you. We just like to point you to Jesus in that way that we found as well. You could be here today and you might be living on the fence. One foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. Friend, get off it today. Renew your commitment to Christ. Come meet us at the cross and let Jesus be number one in your life. Go ahead and begin to sing, Pastor Zach. Our prayer team is coming right now to the front. If you need prayer for anything, they're going to be here for you. Most importantly, if you need to get right with God, now's the time to do it. Slip out of your chair. We'll meet you at the cross. We won't embarrass you, but I promise you we'll help you. You come and we'll pray for you. I love you and thanks for coming today.